painting to photography, from beadwork to woodworking. KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University presents Artbeat. Artbeat highlights the work and accomplishments of local artists from in and around Winona. Support for Artbeat is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Many songs have a story to tell. Sometimes this message is clear, other times it's not. Sometimes it would be nice to know what the artist was thinking when they wrote their melodious poetry. On today's Artbeat, we get the opportunity to get a glimpse at the stories behind the works of local artist Charlie Parr, with his new book, Last of the Better Days Ahead. Charlie's songs are unique for their gripping and emotional lyrics, often accompanied by simple yet elegant strums of a guitar. Join us as we experience the work of Charlie Parr through a written medium on today's Artbeat. I walked into the Marine Art Museum. Fitting with its name, the walls were painted a light blue. The foyer was decorated with recreations of ship figureheads, an artwork depicting medieval ships. A small platform was in the center, where Charlie Parr was tuning his guitar. Meanwhile, a large and vibrant crowd mingled in anticipation for the event ahead. As Charlie took the stage, the crowd cheered with excitement for the main event. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like the idea of doing this. Um, I tried to practice. I've never like read in front of people before, and I tried to practice, and I didn't do well at it. Uh, so what I'm going to do. Uh, is I'm going to play some music and I'm going to read some excerpts and, and then I'll go like that for a little while and then we'll quit doing that. <laughs> and then <clears throat> maybe we won't do it anymore if it doesn't go well. And playing shows is, is relatively easy because you don't really have to do this part much. Um. <laughs> So the, 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 the thing is, um, and the thing has always been about songwriting for me, is, is I'm not, I'm, not uh, I'm, a, I'm a heavy editor on songwriting. I sit down and I write what I want the song to be about, but it turns into this weird, long, like, epic poem-looking thing, or a, just a story, a short story, and then it, it has to be distilled into some kind of song, so like writing a melody and writing music is one thing, that I do, and then going to this kind of bank of stories and deciding, you know, what goes with what is the next step. Um, the last record, that 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 process got kind of deep, I think, because of the because of the pandemic. I had more time, and I was writing more stuff, and 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 um, the the versions of some of these songs got kind of uh, uh, you know more involved. And so when I, when I finished the record part, I looked back and I had a lot of stuff left over that I could make more records out of if I wanted to. But then I thought, you know, after having been hounded by Parker for quite some time about Facebook, <laughs> that, well, I'll just, I'll just do it. I'll just compile this, uh, this weird stuff into, into what it is. And they're not stories so much as they're just, you know, little nightmarish vignettes. Yeah, 
that's a good way to put it. So anyway, that's the way I'm going to go. Uh, and uh, you know, feel free to, to, to voice your dissent or ask questions or just leave if you need to. I really appreciate everyone being out here for this and the, and the museum for hosting it. This is beautiful, and I'm very happy to be here. keep going like that. <laughs> That's called 817 Oakland Avenue. That was, that was written uh, roughly about a, uh, about a, record, a music store in, in Austin where I grew up and, and uh, where they kind of hosted and made welcome all the, all the young uh, musicians in town, wannabe musicians who could come and hang out there. Uh, the thing, the thing about the story of, this, of the same name, and I'll, I'll read you an excerpt from it, it is, really has nothing to do with that. It has, the, the, the store is in the story, but it's not, it's not kind of the, the it's not the uh, main focus of the story like it is in the song. Uh, so, I, I put these little blue pieces of tape on here, and then um, I wrote on, on, on the blue pieces of tape what what each one was, but then it's painter's tape, and the, the writing just rubbed right off. <laughs> I might have to fix that before the next time I do this. This won't get better, it's just going to get worse. <laughs> so this is from the this, this story of the same name as the song, 817 Oakland Avenue, which, by the way, is a misremembered address. There is no 817 Oakland Avenue. In Austin, the actual... Uh, um, the actual uh, house number of the, the music store was in the 20s, 20-something. Uh, <laughs> a couple of friends of mine from Austin called me. There's no 817 Oakland Avenue. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> there were colors like you'd never find anywhere else. Candy apple reds and plum crazies, electric blues, burnt oranges, and neon greens. No one rode a stock bicycle in our neighborhood. We all modified our bikes with long forks and sissy bars and flags and lights and even radios that blared as only a cheap transistor radio can, calling down the AM radio hits and the hourly farming news and weather for everyone to hear, and only rarely playing a song we liked enough to wish it were louder. We obsessed over our bikes. They were our constant projects, a collection of parts new and old, transportation and what felt like freedom. Our bikes gave us access to a community, a society, of all the other bike riders who rode the town, jumped the culverts, explored the trails and field roads, and inspected the neighborhoods where we'd never been and had no associates within. At night, when the bats came out, we all went to our separate houses and parked our bikes and gave them our long, loving gaze before we shut the light off in the garage and went inside. It was summer, and I had dismantled my bike and rebuilt it over the long winter, and now it resembled a chopper or a dragster with long chrome forks growing from the front of the frame and a high sissy bar climbing out of the back. An older boy in the neighborhood who smoked cigarettes and wore t-shirts with no sleeves repainted the frame with smoky gray paint that had flecks of silver throughout and added black pinstripes for the five dollars I'd been saving up, and I discarded the fenders and all the reflective safety gear. There were no frills, no headlight or speedometer. No flags or tassels or baskets on my bike. There were no speeds or handbrakes. In order to stop, all I had to do was pedal backwards or drag my feet. 
which is what I preferred, wearing the soles out of my new sneakers before the 4th of July. The rear tire had no tread, a racing slick that I'd begged for and received on my birthday and installed immediately in the dim light of the garage that very night and sat on the stoop the next day in the sunlight staring at the new tire for hours, never mind that the front tire was old and mostly bald. Music played everywhere that summer. At home from my dad's giant console stereo or my sister's tape deck from her basement room, a cacophony of Jimmy Rogers versus the Rolling Stones, and it seemed like every local dude cruising town was blasting cheap car speakers full of Led Zeppelin and Boston out of the open windows. The local park was alive with the warring of disparate musics and glass packs rattling windows and shaking the open hoods of the cobbled together hot rods, mostly hulking sedans from the late 1960s or early 70s with an occasional T-top Camaro bone stock slinking up Main Street and down First Avenue to the park. We rode among them, weaving in and out of traffic, ignoring the lights and signs, using the sidewalks as much as the streets, and cutting across lawns and driveways to explore alleyways and the paths that followed the creek through town. I don't remember ever being hungry, or having any money, or even caring about those things. I never carried a watch. No one had access to a phone, or paid attention to where we were or how far away we'd gone, but every summer, day was the same, and I started riding as soon as I could and stopped only when I saw the bats circling the streetlights in dark, silent arcs. Um, so I'm not, I, I think I'm going to read a couple of excerpts, because otherwise this is going to turn into me just playing songs and trying not to do that. So, and, and there's certain, certain songs that I just don't want to play live from this record. One of them is called Bed of Wasps. It's a, a relatively painful for me to write. I wasn't sure what it was about as I was writing the song. It turns out that it was about some painful things that have happened to me in the last couple of years. And uh, the song, this, this, the song is, is, is too personal, and so I've decided never to play it. Um, the... The alternative version of the story uh, came out to be extremely bizarre <laughs> and probably is a suitable case for some kind of a, a psychiatric treatment. But <clears throat> it's, uh, it's got to do with, uh, with a dream. And here's, here's part of it. It's called Bed of Wasps. Time is meaningless here. There is only duration, which I suppose is evidence of time, but there are no clocks, no other time measurement devices, or natural indications like the sun to give you clues about the time. And if it can't be detected and measured, then it probably doesn't even exist. If I were to give an example of what my day was like yesterday or the day before that, it wouldn't make any more sense than telling you what I did tomorrow or a week from tomorrow since those words can't be properly defined here. A day with a definite beginning and ending doesn't exist when there's no metric against which to test it. I will tell you about what I've done, since I have memories of doing things, but they all appear the same to me, unbounded by time definitions, as if they've all happened simultaneously in a way. I have no furniture. There is a door in my apartment that I've never opened. I don't know how to describe the process of obtaining food. I do know that there is food here, and I've eaten some of it recently, but it's hard to say how I came by it. It occurs to me that there might be food kept in the entryway or even on the porch, and when I happen to see it there, 
Then I eat it, but I don't think it has much flavor or is particularly substantial. I've never set out deliberately to find food, so apparently it hasn't been a problem for me. <laughs> that one's my favorite one. That's the one my mother's going to like the least. So what inspired you to write a book? Um, songwriting inspired me to write the book because the, 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 the stories in the book are like songs before they become songs. So I've, I've always written this way and putting them together in a book somehow felt like a natural step even though the next step really is to continue like taking them apart and making songs out of them but this seemed like an interesting thing to do and I've always kind of wanted to do it. As the crowd applauded the first story, Charlie began his next song, the book's namesake, Last of the Better Days Ahead. It's called The Last of the Better Days Ahead, which is the best title that I've ever come up with. There's a little bit from the piece of the same name. Uh, one night around 1 o'clock a.m., my uncle drove into the station. His car backfiring and belching blue smoke. He wanted $4 worth of gas. And after I pumped the gas, he said, let's go for a ride, get something to eat. And I shut the pumps off and locked the door to the little hut where we kept the plastic display case filled with cigarettes, an uncomfortable plastic chair, and a safe embedded into the floor. I was hungry. We drove out of town, passing all of the open restaurants and fast food chains lining the state highway that cut our town in half. I was sitting with my knees up, my feet resting on a solid surface of unrecognizable muddy garbage, pliers sticking out of the door and into my side, holding my face toward the open window to avoid breathing the exhaust and burning oil coming up through the floor. My uncle kept up a steady patter, but I couldn't tell what he said over the roar of the engine. At some point, a piece of paper flew from the back seat and wrapped itself around the back of my head, causing me to startle and drive the players deeper into my side. After about ten minutes, we turned off the highway and onto a gravel road, and then after another half mile, my uncle steered the car onto a rutted field road and stopped. The ticking of the engine and the ensuing quiet was all I could hear, and the headlights only showed a tightly planted field of sweet corn gathered directly in our path and seeming to lean into us, as if they were curious about us, asking why we had come. Or maybe we'd been here all along, and they were the ones who just arrived, walking tentatively out of the dark night on high, wiry routes to find us here waiting for them. The darkness and the silence were both made from the same piece of dense material, insisting their presence on the weak headlight beams and the ever-diminishing sounds coming from under the hood. I hugged my knees to my chest and sunk further into the filthy seat, hoping that the darkness would swallow me whole, hoping that my uncle would simply shut the headlights off and get out of the car and walk away, leaving me to become part of the dense material and disappear into it, letting it surround me and absorb me, insul insul insulating me against everything and eventually devouring me entirely into its comforting atmosphere. But then my uncle jumped out of the car, which thankfully didn't have a working interior light, and laughing, he sliced a white gash into the darkness with a flashlight and popped the hood, saying, Here, let me show you something. Well, he shone his light into the engine compartment. The door handle was missing, too, and I had to reach out of the window and open my door from the outside. 
He was shining the flashlight on a sheet metal box that had been fastened to the single six-cylinder exhaust manifold. It was as long as the manifold itself and just a bit wider, with a lid and hinges that my uncle had made himself. I couldn't see how it had been fastened down. Let's pick some corn, my uncle declared, and he strode off towards the first row and began inspecting the plants for good ears. My feet sunk into the soil around the base of the corn plants. I couldn't see anything around me, and the weird fingers of the corn leaves were sticky and irritating against my bare arms. I felt around until I found a couple of mature ears and pulled them straight down and off the stalk, turning to stare through the plants to find the dying headlights of my uncle's car, and I stomped back to the open engine compartment, my shoes heavy with mud. We pulled the floss from the ears, and my uncle poured water from a gallon milk jug on the corn and wrapped them back in their husks and placed them inside the box. I put this together today, he was saying, and these motors run pretty hot. <clears throat> Threw the cigarette clamped between his lips while he poured more water into the box and shut the lid. The rest of what he said was drowned out by the engine as we backed out onto the road and started out again. I nodded at him occasionally and said, yeah, well, he talked, and I tried to get my shoes free of the field mud and garbage, which were making them at least three sizes larger than they actually were, and we rode aimlessly along the county roads around town for another 30 minutes to let the corn heat up, circling our town completely, then half again, to get back to the gas station, where there was a car parked at a pump and an elderly man standing next to it, staring into its digital display. Is this on? The old man asked me after the Ford's engine had stopped. I told him no, and I went to the little building to turn the pumps back on just as he was getting back into his car to drive across the street to the other station. I was stepping out of the little building when my uncle yelled, You got a tongs? There was steam coming out from under the hood of the car, and he was trying to open the little metal box with his flannel shirt wrapped around his hand. Yeah. So, some of these sound like they're true. <clears throat> um, they're not strictly true. Um, like they're like anything, you know. It's all it's all starts from true, and then it goes very very quickly to not true. <clears throat> Here's a little bit. This is a this is from a um, a piece called "Walking Back from Wilmer." Um, the uh, the song that I, that I, I won't I won't play I won't play it tonight. But the song is a is a is a is a kind of a uh, an account of um, the the true part of the song has to do with if you wanted to hop a freight train in Minneapolis and you you just never rode one before. A good way to do it would be to go to a place called the Triangle, which was behind the Dunwoody Institute at the time. And you could get on a freight train that would take you as far as Wilmer. They called it the Wilmer shot. And you could get off there and maybe bring another one back, but half the time you'd end up walking back, which is a long, long ways from Minneapolis to Wilmer. <clears throat> so that's what the song's about. The, uh, the story is something that is 100% made up. Seriously. I had nothing with me. The pockets of my jeans were empty. I was wearing a t-shirt my mom had bought for me with a picture of a bear on it and worn out sneakers even though there was a new pair in my room that I refused to wear since they were a blinding white. But the ones you're wearing now were white, my mother argued, and I mumbled, but they're not now, are they, Janet? 
And for that, I got to sit in my room for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Getting up on the flat car was harder than it looked. The little ladder was higher than I thought. And I had to lay on my stomach and worm my way onto the deck, the ladder leading to the combine's cab, which was much easier to navigate. And to my surprise, the glass door was unlocked and then I was inside, bouncing on the hydraulic seat and pulling the steering wheel this way and that. I could see through the trees to my house and all the way to the farm across the fields on the other side where I'd never been. Then I heard the rolling thunder of the train's knuckles pulling tight as each car strained against its connection and we started moving. I felt nauseous. The ground was far away and I felt like I was losing my balance. I couldn't tell how fast we were moving. There were scraping noises and squeals and knocks coming from all around me. I turned to see my yard but the train had picked up speed and now I could see the yard of a neighbor who lived a couple houses away and we continued to accelerate rocking back and forth now. The giant combine straining against its restraints and me clutching the steering wheel as though I were driving. Apparently, my fondest dreams and my most terrifying nightmares amounted to the same thing. The dizziness subsided after a while and we stopped accelerating and the train settled into a measured kind of rocking which was counterbalanced by the giant machine which wanted to rock the opposite way but was tied down too tightly so there was a palpable tension as the flat car reached the end of its arc but the combine wanted to keep going and we hung in space for the briefest of moments against the air in the giant tires until the monstrous implement was hauled back the other way. Once I was confident that I wasn't going to fly off the car, I started to enjoy the ride, and the limits of my own little town came and went, and we were surrounded by fields and the occasional farm. The tracks followed a county road for miles, veering off on its own here and there, and then meeting up with the road again to trundle slowly through the small farm towns that surrounded my own small farm town. At a crossing in a town that I didn't recognize, there was some kids my own age, sitting astride their BMX bikes, watching the train go by, I caught their eyes and waved, and they jumped up and down, yelling and waving their arms, and I felt like a grown-up, like a king, or maybe like God. And I held the combine steering wheel and gazed down at pedestrians and motorists as we left the town to rejoin the fields. We joined the big river, the tracks hugging the edge of the bluff, and then diving to meet the riverbank for miles and miles. I saw eagles floating high above the train and deer peering at us through the woods leading away from the river. The sky was turning orange now, and the air felt thicker and contained a slight chill. We picked up some speed, and we were traveling the long, flat straightaway, high over the river and through endless pink and orange pasture land, where I couldn't see a single house on the horizon. I was the pilot now, no longer a stowaway hidden in the back of the train. I was the ember that fueled the engines. It was my hands gripping the steering wheel that shaped our trajectory. My eyes scanning the horizon were the only eyes that could trace our route. I noticed that the key was the ignition. What, what would you say is different between writing songs and writing the stories for a book? Um, they're really different things to me. Uh, the, the stories involved a lot more kind of editing. You know, in, in songs, you know, you can, you can get a lot across in a couple of lines, you know, because you only have a couple of lines to do it. In a story, you know, you've got all this space, and so, you know, you, and you almost feel like you need to, like, exp 
explain stuff. So I ended up over explaining stuff and then having to edit a ton to take all that stuff back out again. So um, they're, they're really different processes for me. With the story finished, Charlie moved to his final song of the night, Everyday Opus. That's called Everyday Opus. Um, I'll read a couple more excerpts for you guys, and then uh, um, if anybody's got any things that they need to ask me about, um, I'm fine with that. Criticisms about, I welcome, uh, you know, this is the first time I've done this, so any, any comments? You guys, I trust more than most audiences because I've played in Winona a lot, so. <laughs> There's no one else living here, which is for the best. I like living alone. I keep my house in a particular order, and having someone else here would definitely ruin that. They wouldn't know where to put the cups or how they're supposed to be placed with their handles out and their bottoms up. They wouldn't know that when they're done with the ice cream, or they've used the last of the mayonnaise, not to throw the container away, but to wash it and dry it and place it in its spot on the counter with the others that match. There's no bedroom for anyone else anyway. I need that extra room for storage. And so I have my bed in the living room where a couch would normally be, which is easier for when I want to watch TV before I go to sleep. I don't even have visitors. There isn't even a chair for them to sit on. So even though I have plenty of coffee cups, they wouldn't be able to sit down while they had their coffee. And of course, I'd never allow anyone to sit on my bed except for myself. And if I'm not sitting there, then I'm sitting on my back porch in my lawn chair, and there's only one of those. But I don't have any friends anyway, so I don't have to worry about that. And my family is long gone. My parents both dead for many years. And my only sibling, a brother, killed right up the street at the age of seven when he was run down by a speeding car. I can see the exact spot where he died from my front window, from my spot on the bed, even. And I can remember the day it happened clearly. And I see it happen all over again whenever I look out to that corner, which is why my blinds are drawn most of the time, unless I'm waiting for the mail. Tomorrow is a big day. I'm grading several roads that end in cul-de-sacs and it's a touchy business to get them just right. Leading the crown to the middle of the circle and then crowning all around the circle to return down the road while making sure it still looks like a circle. Teenage kids mess them up all the time, doing donuts in their mom's Honda Accords. I don't even know how that works anymore. We used to do donuts on the gravel turnarounds, but the ancient hulks we drove back then were all rear-wheel drive, and doing donuts was easy. I wonder if you have to drive backwards to get the car to drift like that, or is there another way? I usually have to do two or three passes to get them right, but if they're all messed up, then it takes a lot longer, and I can only get about three of those roads done in a day. I adjust the window shade and fix my sleeping bag around me. Then I double-check to make sure that the bottom of the blind is only just touching the windowsill, and I zip my sleeping bag all the way up and then down halfway, and then all the way up again. I close my eyes, but I can still see clearly. I clean it all up before they arrive and head out to my bus. Maybe I'll stay downtown today and 
get a little lunch at the diner near my job if I have some extra cash. But maybe I'm too tired today, and I'll go home and crash. And in these shoes isn't as easy as you'd like. Dodging all these bricks that are breaking all my lights. We all have to struggle. We'll hold it as our truth. It's about as special for me. Think of a good one to stop on. Oh, here. You guys like water here at this place, so I'll do. <laughs> this is a. This is from a piece called "Blues for Whitefish Lake." There were always a few inches of dirty water in the bottom of the boat that would slosh from one side to the other, or form tiny waves when the ancient outboard motor vibrated the hull. The water contained oil slicks from that old motor, dead and decaying minnows, and small garbage such as cigarette butts and cough drop wrappers. The boat was small, maybe 10 feet, made out of unpainted aluminum and had three bench seats bisecting its length. The dirty water seemed to be pooling specifically around the tennis shoes of a six-year-old boy who was staring at his fishing line as it disappeared into the water alongside the boat, which moved painfully slow along the lakeshore pushed along by the ever-complaining little outboard motor. The boy and his dad were trolling for northern pike. Northerns, as they were commonly called, scared the life out of the boy, looking like an eel that was half head and mostly teeth. His dad said that they were the best-tasting fish, though, so they risked their fingers wrestling the things into the boat and forcing a stringer through their gills and out that teeth-riddled mouth so that the fish could stay alive while it was being towed helplessly along in the water next to the boat, but not too close to the stern where there was danger of the stringer line being wrapped around the diminutive prop of the tiny prehistoric motor. They'd been out there for a couple of hours. Although time for a six-year-old is different altogether from that of a 47-year-old, so it's safe to say that while the man's watch would call it two hours, according to the boy, it had been days and maybe even a week since he'd last seen his bike or his mom, and hunger was tearing his stomach apart, and he was certain he'd die from thirst soon if he wasn't devoured by one of these monster fish first. They just needed to catch one more. There was already one on the stringer, huge. It's something over 12 pounds, struggling against the bright yellow rope and banging occasionally against the side of the boat. They were fishing for lunch and would chug slowly toward the shore only after capturing exactly two of the evil-looking fish to be devoured as quickly as possible after tying the boat to a nearby tree. His dad claimed that fish was good to eat only within an hour of being caught and killed, and he carried a cast-iron skillet as part of his tackle, <laughs> along with a small hatchet for cutting firewood and a razor-sharp fillet knife. Hidden in the bottom of his tackle box was a little Tupperware container of butter, a combination salt-pepper shaker, and a fork. There was also a pack of cigarettes, several loose cough drops, a massive lure for catching, for catching muscalunge, a larger and even more sinister and toothy version of the northern, <laughs> about five nail clippers, good for cutting line, a needle-nose pliers, a screwdriver, a couple rusty spoon lures, red and white striped, a tangle of line and hooks and sinkers, a few odd-looking rubber jigs that were supposed to look like they were swimming when being towed behind the boat, and 37 cents in change. They were fishing on a relatively small lake in northern Minnesota, staying for a week in a cramped pickup camper, surrounded by identical pickup campers that rested heavily on old pickup trucks sporting rust and missing hubcaps. 
The other campers belonged to relatives, uncles and aunts, various cousins who were quiet and owly until they got comfortable, and then became unruly and irritating until they went home. The boy was always quiet, it seemed, which worried his dad, who was a hellraiser in his day, and inspired many men to give him some extra room when he'd been drinking. But the boy was different, and he did everything he could to avoid other people. His parents would find him sitting and staring off into space, clutching a toy car, doodling on any scrap of paper he was given access to. So his dad took him fishing, buckling him into a life vest that was too large for him, and buying him a rod and reel and teaching him how to cast a feathery hook with a minnow impaled on it into the dark waters alongside the borrowed boat. After he'd gotten a look at what they were fishing for, he prayed fervently that he would never catch such a devil on his line, and the transformation that his dad was hoping for never happened. The boy sat carefully in the boat, staring into the deep water while his sneakers got soaked in the pool of water around his feet. Finally, thankfully, his dad landed another northern, this one lighter and skinnier and somehow even more menacing, slithering around the boat like a snake while the boy lifted his feet onto the bench and scooted to one side so his dad could grab the fish and get him onto the stringer with the other one. Let's go eat, was all he said as he let the fish slip into the water and pointed the boat towards the sandy shore near their camp. No one could clean a fish like his dad. All his uncles told him this, explaining about the tiny Y-bones in a northern that can be troublesome to remove, but his dad would fillet the fish in no time, running his thumb along the fillet and making one cut that would bring out an entire line of sharp little bones. The boy liked to scavenge firewood, <clears throat> chopping it into pieces and making kindling for the fire that they would build together on the beach. The butter would go in the skillet, which his dad would balance on the fire until it was hot, and the fish would go in and sizzle and pop and be turned with the tarnished silver fork that had been part of his parents' wedding silver and now lived full-time in Dad's tackle box. They ate directly from the skillet, sharing that same fork with his dad smiling in every bite and the boy smiling to see how happy his dad was, even though in all honesty he wasn't as fond of fish as his dad and would rather have had french fries and plenty of ketchup. The pair sat and looked into the dying fire, and then finally put everything back into the boat along with the boy's too large life vest and leaving his rod and reel with the line still in the water they walked along the path up the shore to a little clearing where the several pickup campers sat in a rough circle. His mom looked up from her lawn chair where she'd been reading and his dad said nothing was biting and went to the outhouse further along the path. The boy found his toy car and went back to a never-ending Sunday drive along rutted dirt roads in the shadows of pine trees and clouds. I take up very much space, just the front room with my bed and I make a little supper, I watch a little TV. I usually feel too restless to grab a book and Where read. Where did they find your book if anyone wanted to pick it up? Uh, Ramshackle Press. Uh, I believe they have a website. My website, at charliepar.com, there'll be a link there. Uh, maybe some bookstores, I don't know, and my shows. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, and again, it was a lovely show. Thank you. I'm glad you were here. Thanks for that. Thanks to Charlie Parr for agreeing to be on today's Artbeat. To pick up Charlie's book or any of his albums, go to www.charlieparr.com. For more conversations about art, Tune into Artbeat Tuesdays at 12:30 right here at 89.5 KQAL. I'm Giovanni Bermudez. Artbeat is written and produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. Visit us on the web at kqal.org. <laughs>